The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. It is time for Streetwise with former chief of the New York City Sheriff's Department, former chief of the Seagate Police Department, retired New York City detective, Time Warner Public Access Media Award, Joe Franklin Super Excellence in Broadcasting Memory Lane Award, New York Veteran Police Association Streetwise Productions, host of Streetwise, Mr. Lou Tarano. Uh, good, e- good evening and uh, welcome back to uh, Streetwise. Uh, my guest this evening is uh, New York Times uh, best-selling author. Uh, he's a, contri- a contributing editor for the Rolling Stone and winner of the 2008 National Magazine Award and columns and commentary. Now, I'm going to talk about, uh, he wrote several great books, and obviously uh, you could see he's a, uh, a good author, but we are uh, sort of uh, opposite sides of the spectrum. I thought he might not call in when he uh, Googled me, but uh, he's a mensch, as they say, and I'm glad he called in. We're going to talk about his book, uh, Killing on Bay Street. Now, I'm familiar with Bay Street. I did a couple of cases there years back. It's in Staten Island. And uh, as you know, the infamous chokehold uh, case of Eric Gardner uh, by police officer. And uh, my guest wrote a book on that. An interesting book. I want to welcome to Streetwise, Matt Tahibi. Matt, welcome to Streetwise. Thanks for having me on, Lou. <laughs> okay. You, you, you know, uh, before I jump in, obviously we touched base before. Mm-hmm. And interesting, your dad interviewed me and my family. I think we talked. We sort of talked about this on on, uh, on text messages and email, whatever. Twenty nine, I think twenty nine years ago. Here I am interviewing you. Yeah, I know. It, it, a lot of uh, it's funny. You know, my father wrote a book um, many years ago about the Tawana Brawley case. Yes. And he uh, he had some run-ins with Al Sharpton, and I had to interview Al Sharpton for this book too. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's all cyclical. Uh, it, it is, and there's also a little uh, common denominator, as, as you say. There's a Filipino heritage back background yeah. between all of us. That's right. That's right. My father's Filipino American, and I guess you. You have some heritage as well, or yes, pretty much, yes, and that's what the discussion with my late wife, your uh, your dad, the uh, Mike Tahibi, just want you to know a lot of us in my age bracket, pretty much uh, familiar with Mike Tahibi, a great uh, international reporter, author uh, as well. Now your book, uh, obviously you sort of. Uh, oh, by the way, I, I do have to do this, and it just happened today. We want to pay. Uh, uh, condolences to Erica Gardner, the daughter of Eric Gardner, who passed away. I think it was today, right, uh, Matt? This yeah, morning? this morning at about nine nine twenty or so. Yeah, she's a young young lady, twenty seven years old. She died of a heart attack. So, uh, it's uh, anyway your uh, your book. You in your book you pretty much lean towards. Uh, I, I guess that uh, Eric was like an innocent bystander. And the, well, I, and I didn't. Like, yeah, I didn't. I didn't say that exactly. No, no I, not exactly. Yeah. Correct. Not exactly. No, I. I, I mean, I think if Eric Garner were here today, I think he would pretty freely admit that what he was doing was illegal, and and uh, um, that's how he made his money. Uh, he was a very flawed person. Uh, even his even his family um, spoke of him that way. And in fact, when I told. 
told members of his family that I was going to write a, a book about him. Um, you know, they pretty much everybody that I talked to was insistent that you know I not try to paint him as some kind of sort of false saint. He was a likable guy uh, in the way that a lot of flawed people are. Yes. Um, but that doesn't mean that he didn't have some pretty serious problems. He, you know, he he was a crack dealer in his youth. He had um, at least one crime of violence on his sheet, um, and uh, and in, uh, until he was pretty old, uh, until you know, until, until pretty late in life, I should say. Excuse me. Um, he his priorities were not were not so great. Uh, and it, it just so happened that, you know, by the time that this happened to him when he was 43 years old, he was really, he had, he had undergone a lot of changes in his life. And yes, he was selling untaxed cigarettes, but he, he, there are a lot of people in that neighborhood who are a lot scarier than Eric Garner. And, and you know, I have, you, I guess, I, I guess you're familiar with the neighborhood as well. Uh, he, he certainly wasn't the worst character out there, for sure. Oh, no, uh, for sure. Uh, I had the cases I had in Staten Island because I was in a major case were mm-hmm. pretty much uh, homicides, so rape, kidnapping, and uh, uh, you know muggings of especially of senior citizens. So it was not my. Uh, I wouldn't even be. I couldn't care if somebody was selling untaxed cigarettes or, right, yeah, or, or unlicensed. That wasn't even, and not it wouldn't be in the interest of mine. Uh, but. I was concerned because, you know, as you know, my background is law enforcement. And what I, yeah, but what I've noticed is that uh, prior to being walking a beat in, in Brooklyn, I, I worked at jails. So I was a New York City correction officer. And you mentioned late in life. That is late in life for a lot of criminals in their 40s. But what happens is sort of a kind of late in life to look back and say, oh, my God, what did I do? And, you know, you, a lot of these guys in their 40s, they've been... You know, not Eric, uh, I don't think him, but many of them, from my experience, are stealing pocketbooks and mugging people at 14 years old. Uh, there's no record of that because of the family court the confidentiality. So we only know what they've done since they're 16. In Eric's case, he did have 30 prior arrests, and then they get tied like anyone else does in any, any job. His job, you know... Uh, his job was doing what he did. That was the only way he knew how to make a living. But I did understand the family was on food stamps and welfare, and I, I guess the term they use, free free stuff, also as well. So he wasn't the poor, hardworking guy. Uh, I think he got ill, like most of criminals do. They do in later life because they abuse themselves. You know. Well, no, he he had asthma from when he was a child, which. As you probably know, yes. African American children are about twice as likely to have asthma, um, and he he always had it. Uh, it wasn't wasn't through any fault of his own. He had it back when he was a uh, an athlete mm. uh, in his teens. Um, it got progressively worse as he got older, and of course, the lifestyle doesn't help. I mean, he's sitting out there, you know, rain or shine, you know. it's freezing up on that hill, and if you're sitting out there selling 50-cent cigarettes one at a time uh, every single day of your life, of course, you're going to end up with all kinds of health problems. Um, you know, but, you know, I, 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 I do think we have a disagreement here. I think, I think Eric Garner, every time he, he, he tried to go the straight and narrow, he just didn't have a whole lot of options. He, you know, he, he went to a, 
uh, a city-approved program that paid him, I guess, $60 every two weeks to, mm-hmm. to clean median strips and things like that. But, mm-hmm. you know, he he didn't have any luck getting square jobs. He tried and tried and tried, and, just, and it didn't happen. In fact, he couldn't even get a job selling drugs at the mm-hmm. end. Uh, and that's, that's, that's when he turned to selling on tax cigarettes. Um, because he had literally no other options, and his family had, they were on food stamps and welfare, right. and in part, in part because he wasn't there for uh, a significant period of time, and a lot of his kids were in care as well. So, um, you know, it's, it's, like, as I said, he's not a perfect person, and he, he had a lot of problems, but, uh, he was, he was far from the, from the, uh, the vicious least, street least sympathetic person on the, in that block, and yeah. I, I met everybody out there. But you, you know, you know what happens. I just want to, uh, you, you know, when you're a police officer, you know, truthfully, you don't, you don't really, you, you, that's really not your focus. But of they, were, they were ordered there. I, I don't know. By the way, the uh, the uh, mayor, the mayor of the city of New York, Bill uh, De Blasio, uh, he's the one that pretty much ordered the police to be there on, on that strip. I, you probably know that. In other words, they were getting a lot of complaints from the storekeepers, and there was some worry that because of his size, he was intimidating. So people were afraid. So the storekeepers, I know because I spoke to some of them, I did a show on this, they were, his presence, they would lose business by him standing in front of the door intimidating people. He didn't have to say a word, you know. You know, he walked and talked, I have to say this, uh, a certain way, which would would uh, would scare senior citizens or weaker people or men in general. So they they made they were making a lot of calls to the one two one one two two precincts in Staten Island, and they put pressure on the cops. You got to go down there and get rid of these these uh, people. Not only are they taking business away from the stores, they're intimidating uh, customers. They they didn't just happen to drive by and say, hey, "Let's go pick on this big guy." You know, they were ordered there. It was a, a unit that they were against, but you have to do your job. Well, I completely agree with you, and I wrote, and this is one of the things that I wrote in the book. But th- this is this is where we have a, a paradox, right? Because right. yes, um, Eric Garner that that morning, and I and I pieced together a, like a minute by minute timeline of what mm. happened that day. Um, he, first of all, wasn't feeling well. Second of all, he had a little bit of a, an issue on the street because people thought he had snitched on someone the night before. Um, so he had a couple of conversations about that. Uh, then he wasn't well and went into a bathroom for a couple of hours and came out, broke up a fight. Mm. And what you, what you say about the, this unit being ordered to be there, um, seems to be true from from the statements that the that the city put out later that they they directed officers to go and address quote address specific conditions in the neighborhood but the problem was he wasn't selling cigarettes at that time so you know that that's why when you watch the tape you see him in he's incredulous because he doesn't he doesn't understand why he's being picked up at that time and um and I you know I talked to other officers who would tell me and you you can tell me if this is true or not too that if you if you come into the precinct in the morning and you have a superior officer tells you to go to a corner and pick up some pick up some guy they saw on the way in you can't just tell them to move around the corner you got to get a number right you got to get you got to 
make an arrest, do something. Uh, and for a lot of the people that I talked to, that was their explanation for what happened, is that these two guys felt like the only solution that they had was to, was to make an arrest um, because they had been ordered to do so. And but there's a problem there because was the guy committing a crime or not? I mean, you know, so so that that was that was how I saw that incident, which was just a, to me an un, a very very unfortunate series of misunderstandings that just escalated very quickly into into a deadly situation. Right. You, you know, you just I, I agree with you. You know, sometimes you have to you have to show uh, your commanding officer, and you have to show a city hall. That you know you get you're getting some results. You're right. It's uh, a lot of cops will not tell you this. I can say it. I can say it. It's like giving out summonses. Uh, there's no there's no order how many summonses to give out, but you do have to give out summonses. There's no uh, directive how many arrests you have to make, but there is. But they do want to see uh, arrest activity, especially if they have a, a condition. The problem here is that Eric has a lot of experience interacting with with police. And he knows if they, if an officer tells you stay here, you don't walk away. If an officer says, uh, show me some identification, you have to make an attempt to either identify yourself. But if an officer says you're, you're under arrest, you cannot resist. You know, you can't walk away. That's where the problem. That's where. Well, if you talk to any lawyer, and I talk to a lot of them, correct. For this book, they'll tell you that there has to be a crime for the arrest to be legitimate. Absolutely. You got probable no. cause. You got to have probable cause. The probable cause was, and I hate to say it, what you just said it before, illegal cigarettes. That's the crime. Whether we like it or not, the cops don't like it, but they have to have arrested for something. You're selling illegal cigarettes. Yeah, but was he? But the the, the, the question, yes. the, the million dollar question, or the, right. or the six million dollar question, as it turned out, right. is <laughs> is was he selling illegal cigarettes at that time. I couldn't find anybody who said that he was. And I and I talked to people, shop owners, right, uh, people on the street, witnesses, people who didn't like him, people from rival crews. I couldn't find anybody who said that he was actually, he was leaning up against the wall, catching his breath after breaking up a fight right. uh, when when the arrest took place. And most of it, you can see, it's captured on, on the video. Um, you know, he... he that's, it's one of the reasons he reacted that way, uh, and so you know, there's there's a question in my mind. Now, a week beforehand, there had been a similar incident where he had been approached uh, in a check cashing uh, storefront and had had been told he was under arrest, and he also refused to go at that time. Now, that, this is according to people on the street, mm-hmm. and. From what I hear, he was actually selling cigarettes at that time. Um, so maybe this was, in, you know, a continuation of that incident. I don't know, but but uh, but from the from for that particular day, there's no question that Eric Garner sold untaxed cigarettes for a living. That's what he did. Not a big deal. But go ahead. But but it's just a question of was he doing it at that moment. And that meant a lot. That, that question does mean a lot to the people in that neighborhood. Yeah, you know, Matt Tahibi, Here's the thing: politics is always involved, no matter what we say. Sure. Uh, okay. Uh, if you're a police officer, you don't have a job and have a complaint. So the best thing for you would say, "All right, 
You can't sell cigarettes. Yeah, just move on and take off. That's what probably happened at the check cashing place. But this particular incident, they had to show results because it was the mayor's directive to the uh, Staten Island commanding officers. And, sure. Uh, but, okay. Do you feel there was anything racial involved in this incident? Well. Yes. <laughs> I would say sure, yeah. Okay. I mean, I, you know, I, I think I think if you have... Uh, a 350-pound white guy who's sitting on a corner not doing anything. Would you write a book on that if that were the case? If it was a 350-pound white guy, would you do a story on it? Would I write a book about it? Probably not, because there'd be be fewer issues involved. I mean, uh, you know, the the whole question of, of, you know, broken windows policing, the, the... um, what happened in this in this situation? What what how, the the accumulation of incidents across the country? Why people why people are so upset about them? It's you know it, would it be of interest to a journalist if there was just a, a, ran, a random incident that didn't, that involved a, a a person who was very much like Eric Garner except he was white? Probably right. not. I probably mean, not. I'll be I'll be honest with you. you know, yeah. No, probably not. Yeah, it wouldn't be. Yeah, it wouldn't be. But the history wouldn't be there either. So no, for, I understand that. Uh, yeah. I completely understand that. Uh, but you know this. But do you know who the? Uh, uh, when some people say it's racist, if you see the whole tape, I don't think you. You know what? What the uh, media does is they show you what they want to show you. I'm, I'm sure you know this. The initial part of the tape is, uh, you see a directive by a sergeant telling them to lock him up. Did you see that part? Uh, that part of the tape. Matt Hebe. Yeah, you mean Kizzy? The black, she's a black female. Yeah, Kizzy Adonis. Yeah. Uh, that's right. So she's your boss. She tells you, lock him up. What do you do? Say, I, I can't lock him up, boss? Right, but she's, she's not the person who actually gave the directive. I mean, the directive. No, no, I understand that. Of course, it comes from upstairs, as they yeah. say. We know. But she's there on the scene, and she's your sergeant. And, right. you know, uh, keep in mind, I, as a retired uh detective and the former chief of police, if I get stopped from a police officer and he says, you're under arrest with disorderly conduct, I do not walk away. I stay there. You know? Sure. So he didn't do but you that. you probably haven't been stopped 50 times in your life either. You know what well, I'm saying? I, I get stopped like anyone else. I mean, I, I speed and I get pulled over like anyone else. You know, uh, I probably, I have to admit, I probably get extended the courtesy. You know, uh, I, I do have to admit that, you know, like I extended courtesies when, when I, you know, grabbed a, actually a law-abiding citizen or a, uh, another police officer. Uh, yes. But people that, like, if, you, if you're going to say, but was, all right, so what's your explanation? There was a black female, uh, boss or supervisor at the scene. Well, okay, she's she's at the scene, but, but I, th- I think it's I think it's abundantly clear, and and this is is borne out in the city's own statements that she's not the person who sent that crew there that that day. Absolutely, um, absolutely. And whether it was something that happened at Comstat, um, because that's something I heard as well uh, that there have been complaints about that neighborhood. There's also another theory that I heard from another cop in that neighborhood. There were actually two guys in that in that strip named Eric who sell cigarettes. One of them had a constant beef with one of the store owners, mm. and there had been a complaint by him that day. Um, so maybe that was what what happened. But the most common explanation I heard for what happened that day was that there was that somebody had uh, from the precinct had gotten yelled at in a Comstat meeting, 
mm-hmm. um, about that particular neighborhood and had been ordered to go clean it up. And, um, you know, as, as you know, those orders make their way down the chain and somebody got sent to the, to the neighborhood to go, to go make that arrest. But again, the, pre- the problem is the guy just wasn't doing it at that time, as far as I can tell. I mean, you know, and, and he's, if you, if you spend a lot of time in that neighborhood, you'll see they're there out there, there are guys out there every single day who are selling crack, heroin. Correct. Um, and everybody knows who they are. And that's, that's another part of the story that's, that's, that, uh, that is, is, let's just say it's upsetting to the people in that neighborhood. Like of all the people they picked, um, they picked the guy who was, you know, involved in a sub-misdemeanor activity. But I, but I, but I agree with you. I, you know, I, I, that's one of the reasons why I didn't focus so much on, on the individual officers in the book, because to me, it, it has a lot more to do with, um, you know the the police are very often forced to uh, to do to execute policies that are dumped on them by politicians be, who just don't want to deal with the problems themselves. And I think that's that's probably what happened in this case. Well, that played a big role. No, uh, no two ways about it. But I, I just I do have to say this because uh, on my show, because uh, we, we uh, obviously I talked about it, and uh, the people that disagree with. With you, that it's racial. I think you said you do believe there's a it plays there's a racial uh, part involved in this. But I, I think that's what you said. Now, people that disagree with you, uh, I'm going to mention them: Elvira King, the niece of uh, Martin Luther King or grandniece, uh, Sheriff David Clark, uh, Burgess Owen, Kevin Jackson, uh, even Oliver Stone, but he's a white guy, and Janine Pirro. But uh, a lot of uh, guests who are on my show, high profile, are well known. Uh, people like you, uh, they sort of uh, disagree that it was a, a racial incident, which most people want to. Uh, Black Lives Matter groups like that try to create it and make it a racial incident. Like you mentioned before, your dad was did an interview uh, in the Tawana Brawley case. This is another case that it, it turns into a racial thing. And which is ridiculous, uh, you know. But if you are a police officer, uh, if you are a police officer, uh, Matt Tahibi, and you and you try to arrest somebody, he says, "F you," and walks away. I mean, what would you, what would you do? Well, but here's the thing, though. I haven't been like I've I've lived in New York City since 2001. Mm-hmm. I've lived in cities my whole life. Um, I've never once been stopped, never once been put up against the wall, never once had my pockets, had somebody go through my pockets, mm-hmm. never once been pulled over for no reason, uh, never mm-hmm. once had my car searched. Um, I have been stopped for speeding, but I was actually speeding at those times. Mm-hmm. Um, if you talk to young black males in New York City, pretty much all of them have a story uh, or a dozen stories about being stopped for things like, having a highlighter in their pocket or, you know, for, uh, or just doing it, just being stopped for, you know, a 250 for a stop and frisk. That's never happened to me. I mean, it just doesn't happen in white neighborhoods. So it's hard, it's hard for me to say, um, how I would respond right. if, if it was the 20th or 30th time I've been stopped 
and you know, uh, I, I just it's it's hard for me to answer that question. Well, okay, but a person like Eric Gardner, he can answer that question because he's he's uh, he's very ex- experienced dealing with the police in, in the city of New York, and he knows. And I, I'm I have to believe. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously, uh, I, I think. Uh, it's very sad that, that, that he died. There's no two ways about that. You know, but again, there's a couple of elements of that. Uh, the police have no clue if you if you have diabetes, high blood pressure, you know, or things of that that nature. When they try to arrest you, but if they tell you you're under arrest, you have to comply. And what you're saying, uh, someone asked me many years ago. In fact, uh, a couple of nieces came in on the Filipino side, by the way. And they went mm-hmm. to they went to Berkeley, uh, Matt, and we were sitting down. They came to visit the family, and they said, "Uncle Lou, why is it you cops again? I hate that word. Only lock up black people." She didn't say African American because she didn't use that uh, cliche at that time. So I said, to her, "You know something, sweetheart? I really tried, but working, uh, but I couldn't find any Polish people in Brownsville." <laughs> You know, or Harlem. Uh, it depends where you work. If it's a high crime area, obviously you're going to you're going to no matter uh, you're going to lock up. Well, Just, I guarantee you, know, you, if you start if you start pulling people off the street down in Wall Street and going through suitcases and pockets, you're going to find plenty of coke, H, and ecstasy. I believe that. Yeah, uh, and that. and those people aren't going to jail, and and that that's but but that, getting back to the question, of Eric Garner. Right. The, I, one of the ironies of the whole thing is that Eric Garner was was a guy who had a rep for not giving lip to the police. In fact, he he was one of the people who would meekly go to the station. He thought of it as as, as a business transaction. Mm-hmm. He had repeatedly gone over and over and over again. His attitude started to change when he felt like when he felt like the, the the attitude of the police started to change toward him he kept he started to get pulled over when he wasn't working he started to get his money vouchered when he was on his way to the laundromat uh, he thought that the game you know the, the the unwritten rules of the game were being violated and you, you can agree or disagree with him about that but this is a guy who until he was 43 years old had never had never given any lip to the police at all Uh, and then suddenly he does one day and okay it's not maybe not the right thing to do but you know I I think there there were probably other ways to deal with that solution that that situation well I can I can tell you this Uh, I've worked in very rarely I worked in in a white white area to be honest with you but we, we did stop white guys and white people and if they give you a tough time let me tell you something you give them a tough time you and you lock them up as as well there's no difference it depends the the, the problem is in the areas that 75th precinct 73rd precinct using brooklyn as an as an example it's a high crime area and it happens to be predominantly african-american so who are you gonna who are you gonna lock up there in, in the 75th precinct itself uh, 73rd predominantly housing projects had the highest uh, uh, stats for homicide and shootings, and all of uh, not only all of New York and all of the country at what time at one time. So who are you going to stop in those? The crime is the crime is more prevalent in, uh, by the way, in African American areas. It? Oh, of course. Wait, what, what, what are the stats say about about illegal drug use in New York City? Oh, well, drug is another story. I, we both we can could talk about that all day, and I probably agree with you. I'm talking about muggings, purse snatching, rapes. 
robberies, homicides, and shootings. That's what my thing was. I was a homicide right. detective. You, you, I couldn't you, you, care about uh, somebody smoking a joint on the corner, to be honest with you. you know? Right, and I'm in, I'm in agreement. Look, I, I think you and I are basically in agreement about a lot of things. I, 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 my, my quibble almost entirely in the book is with the, the policy of going after the minor criminal uh, over go, going after people jumping turnstiles, riding uh-huh. riding their bicycles the wrong way down the sidewalk, open container violations, um, you know, the, the uh, and then it's, then for nonviolent drug crimes, uh, you know, we had a there was an incident where uh, a judge named Noah Deer. I don't know if you've ever heard of that guy, of that guy, but he was giving a ticket out for an open container violation and he said, you know, I've never, never done giving one of these to a white guy before. Um, and it's not like white people don't drink out in the street. I'm sure you've been around on SantaCon. It's just, it's, it's that stuff that I think, where I think the problem is. I, I have no, no problem with, with being as hard and, and tough on the law and order side as you want when it's, when it comes to rapes, muggings, murders, and, and serious crimes. It's the it's the policy that they instituted in the early '90s, where they targeted the minor criminal, where that's when the inequities came in, and that and 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 the statistics bore, bear that out, you know, and then and, and then that's what Eric Garner was. He was a minor criminal by that time. Oh, I think so. But you know, we're actually talking about the broken window policy, which was the uh, quality of life change uh, under Rudy Giuliani. But you know, I have to talk about that because I was the. Uh, I was the, at that time. I was the chief of the CJ Police Department. Then I went on to be chief for the New York City Sheriff's Department. So I was working. My boss was Rudy Giuliani as the mayor, and I can tell you this: jumping a turnstile. Obviously, uh, it's a minor crime. But you know what happens? I can give you the stats on that. Eighty percent of people that are arrested in those years for jumping the turnstile either had open warrants either had guns on them or had drugs on them. They were just not poor kids or poor people that couldn't afford to, to pay for the uh, the subway ride. They were they had a purpose. So that was the reason of the turnstile. 80% of them had guns, drugs, or warrants? Absolutely. Or open warrants or open cases or their intentions were to mug people. 80% during that time. Had to have open cases, well, I don't know how open... you can know what their intentions were. I mean, oh, obviously, you know. I, I I know that we're going to say that, but as a detective, uh, we uh, like you said, you talk to lawyers; they're going to say the same thing. What were the what were their intentions? But when you talk to them, one of them will tell you, "Well, we were going to we were going to mug somebody." They will tell you that, by the way. You know, mm-hmm. they, and and you, and you do get that, and you do get that dialogue from them. So, but well, I, but that I was there was a reason. Just... Yeah, I, I know there was a reason for that with the uh, jumping the turnstile. I mean, I, I I know where you're coming from, like, I, and I heard that from a lot of police officers. But I also heard, you know, lots and lots of stories about just people, young black men who were on their way home from school and found themselves being thrown up against the wall or or, had, or having their their book bags open and dumped on the ground, and they cops would be driving away before they even got up off the sidewalk. I got okay. I, I may create you. T- I may sort of uh, lean toward that. But do you think all those cops were white? No, but that doesn't make a difference. I mean, it's it. it, it mm. what, this, this is when this is where we get back to the question of why do people uh, ultimately, maybe twenty years down the road, resist? It might it might be a lifetime of stuff like this. You know, I mean, who knows? Uh, I, you you hear you hear a lot of stories. I mean, I heard a lot of stories from people in places like. Uh, 
like Stapleton um, and Park Hill, you know, really, really tough places. West, where, West where Brighton, people, West Brighton. Sure, uh, tough, uh, tough neighborhoods where yeah. people where where where, where the residents themselves were scared of the drug dealers, who when they first heard about stop and frisk were were glad about it, who thought that the. They, their lives would be safer because of it, and they ended up being very embittered uh, by it because they they themselves ended up being, um, uh, or at least in their telling, they they, they ended up being targeted, and and so, you know, it, like this isn't norm, my normal beat. I didn't I, I haven't covered criminal justice my whole life. I've mostly covered Wall Street until mm. until pretty recently, um, but. Uh, but you know, you go with the preponderance of what of what the interviews tell you, and I I kept hearing the same story over and over again mm-hmm. from you know, from from people in these neighborhoods who 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 particularly had problems with that with that particular policy, that stop and frisk, broken window style policy, which which uh, you know. There. You know, there was a drop in the crime rate, and, and criminologists talk, talk about maybe the, the, that was the reason why. Um, but there are other officers who didn't who didn't like it. You know, I'm sure you must have talked to, to police officers who don't want to be busting people for riding the wrong way down the sidewalk and or jumping turnstiles and that sort of thing either. So, um, you know, I I I, I heard. From the people on the street, almost universal disdain for those policies, and from from police officers, you know, most of them I would say were okay with it. But there were there were a few dissenters too. There were, there were some people who didn't like it, and uh, I'm sure you must hear from those. Yeah, absolutely, I I, I I I have. Now I can tell you this is that uh, if you're a police officer in those days, New York City Transit Police, which is New York City part of the New York City Police since 1995, they they would tell you this. And from my experience, working in conjunction with some of the detectives in the transit, uh, if someone is going to work and they legitimately cannot afford, uh, for whatever reason, to, to pay for the uh, subway, the cops would tell them. We'll let them go. Only, the only reason why they'd be arrested is, for what I mentioned a minute ago, they would have contraband on them or they would have an open warrant. And, mm-hmm. and you know, or, uh, that would be the reason. I could t- you, you don't get the stats on how many people were cut loose that walked through those sliding open doors years ago. And he's an officer, I just don't have the money. And if they're legitimate people, right, the cops will let them go. They don't want to waste their time locking some someone up for fair beat. That's ridiculous. It's a waste of your time and energy, fair beat. What you lock them up for is the the crimes that go along with it, the the drugs on them, the gun on them. Maybe, but I did, I, you know, I found case after case where people were locked up for yeah. obstructing government administration, obstructing pedestrian traffic, okay. you know, different parts of the disorderly uh, conduct Ma- law. Matt, do you, wanna, do you want to hang in there? i got to take a break. Do you want to hang in there for a few more minutes, maybe take sure. a call? Mm-hmm. Would you do that? Okay, thank you. Uh, Matt Tahibi, my guest. Great book. I can't breathe. The, the chokeholds out in Iowa. Well, I'll be right back. Hang in there. This is WGBB AM 1240 and W240DFFM 95.9 Freeport, New York. What do I cherish? 
precious moments. Watching Dad read to my little Eric. That's why I'm so grateful I insisted on an eye exam when I noticed him struggling with the words on the page. We found out Dad has age-related macular degeneration, or AMD. Fortunately, the doctor caught it in time for treatment, so Dad can still read. Protect yourself and your loved ones. Call the Foundation Fighting Blindness today at 1-800-BLINDNESS for a free packet on preventing and managing AMD. A cure is in sight. I'm back. Uh, this is uh, Lou, Lou Tolano, and I'm back with an interesting uh, guest. Uh, his book is by a great book, and uh, you have to buy it. He's wrote several uh, best-selling books, uh, but this particular book is uh, Killing on Bay Street. That's Staten Island. That's the uh, the chokehold case that, uh, you, you know, where the police seem to uh, uh, chokehold uh, Eric Gardner selling, you know, uh, illegal cigarettes. I hate when they say that because I never locked anybody up for less than, a, uh, I guess, a purse snatch. You know. Anyway, uh, uh, I, uh, Mike, uh, Matt, sorry, Matt Tahibi. Uh, I have. To, I just got a text message uh, uh, to ask you this question, sure. uh, and uh, I just hope the call in so they may call in. But anyway, the the question is that if everyone uh, jumped the turnstile, uh, you know, how could we afford that? Well, That's I don't. The question. Know. I don't know. That question is a little bit above my pay grade, but okay. I, I, I have I have to say that uh, you know, uh, for for a previous book that I wrote that was really about you know because I spent years and years and years writing about guys who who stole you know tens of millions or even hundreds of millions of dollars in Wall Street scams and right. didn't, never saw the inside of a courtroom, um, and so to try to look at who did go to jail in this country. I spent a lot of time in uh, in courtrooms and misdemeanor courts and watch person after person pay $100 fines for things like riding their bikes the wrong way down the sidewalk or obstructing pedestrian traffic or mm. things like that. Um, I, I get the idea that, yeah, of course, if you see a crime being committed, if you see somebody jumping a turnstile, but the statistics bear out that the overwhelming majority of these the people who are being busted for quality of life offenses are African Americans, African American or Hispanic in a city that's okay. more than half white. So uh, before you know, I, I have an answer, I got somebody on the phone phone uh, from Arizona. By the way, uh, what was that? Was that Tom? Tom from Arizona. Yes. You're on the line, Tom. Okay, thank you. Yes, your question or yeah. statement. I, well, I'm, I'm listening uh, online, so I, I guess we're on, I'm on the wrong time here. Um, yes. I, uh, I, I just want to say, I, I live in Arizona now, and I'm, I'm a former law enforcement officer. I grew up in Red Hook, Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and um, I, I'm listening to, to the show, and, and uh, it's kind of bittersweet because uh, I think it was tragic that, that that man died that day, and I think it was tragic that police officers had to be involved in it, and uh, I think it all comes back to uh, policy and to say that uh, the mayor ordered ordered that. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I think that um, having grown up in, in a very low-income area, uh, Red Hook was, uh, right. they, they tore it down to build a slum, you know. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but, it, but it was, uh, the, what, what my experience as a law enforcement officer, uh, having grown up in, in, in that environment, uh, helped me. Uh, to to uh, to relate to people and uh, to I mean there's nothing I think more traumatic uh, to anyone than to be to be told you're under arrest 
and and I think that, that things happen that that, that triggers uh, all kinds of emotion on both sides of it mm-hmm. in police officer and and, uh, and and that person. But the thing is, uh, what Mayor Giuliani did, and I, I and I actually knew him uh, and worked with him in the Department of Justice, right. Um, and uh, I, with that the broken window policy worked. And uh, I remember uh, I, thinking that New York was ungovernable. I, I thought that uh, Mayor Koch was, came closest to being able to handle it until Rudy became mayor. Right. And, and the, the crime, the, the crime statistics went went down uh, downhill dramatically. Correct. And so it, it does work. But but the thing is, uh, you know, the, the the human element here that that's involved uh, really do. I, I think it really does put the police in 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 a uh, very difficult situation uh, very often. So what's your question? Do you have a question or statement? I know what you're saying. Yeah, well, well, yeah. well the, the, quest, the question is, uh, did, uh, the, the, the author, uh, he, he says that he interviewed and, and he talked with police officers and right. he talked with people in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, uh, uh, Jim, he, does he come away with, with an understanding of of, uh, of you know, really, what what the dynamics of, of these situations are, or is it just sure. uh, you know, I mean, what, what, what do you come out of when you do this kind of in, intensive investigation? Right. And I respect what he did. I respect his position. So, uh, yes, but, uh, yeah, Matt, do you have a response to Tom from yeah, Arizona? No, sure. I mean, yeah. I, 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 again, one of, one of, and thank you for the, for for calling in. I mean, I, I. I Spoke with a lot of police officers, and I have a tremendous respect for how difficult that job is. I um, I spent on another story, another story in Camden, New Jersey. I spent weeks doing ride arounds. I know how how uh, dangerous the job is. I know how how dis- disgusting it can be at times. You got to reach into pockets. People have needles. People, you know, they bite. There's you know they vomit in the back of your squad car. It's a, it's a tough, tough job. You don't get paid a lot of money to do it. Not people aren't patting you on the back all the time for doing it either. Mm. And you got to go to these neighborhoods, and and sometimes you got to deal with people who are un, you know unreasonable. And it's it's a very very difficult thing for for somebody to be thrust in the middle of. Um, and I think what happened in this particular situation uh, is is that you had. Maybe some young officers who who were asked to do something that was, um, you know, they, they were they were put in an untenable situation uh, because they had they they probably had to take him in, but he probably wasn't selling cigarettes at that moment. He's a big guy; uh, they don't know him, and you know, I think there there were differing interpretations of how that could have been handled. I mean, I, I talked to other police officers who said if they had spoken to him in a different way, he might have gotten into the car. Um, but it didn't happen that way, and it all went sideways, and that's mm-hmm. unfortunate. Um, and I certainly sympathize with the police officers. I, I, I think it's the policy, though. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I honestly do. I think, I think um, you know, it, it, the... the you, a lot of these officers get put in a position where they ha- where they have to pick up people for for really really minor things, and that engenders a lot of hostility, and then put and then creates a lot of these situations. Right, uh, Tom. Thanks for your question or statement. Also, uh, she's probably gone already. Uh, okay, uh, what what Tom was saying, uh, Matt. 
the uh, quality of life. Uh, I could just tell you this. I, I hate to talk about myself, but sometimes I get trapped. Sure. I was chief of the sheriff's department, and uh, completely different from the where I came from. Ninety uh, percent, uh, you know, ninety percent in the sheriff's department in the city of New York is civil, and there is ten percent criminal. Uh, when Rudy Giuliani, who were the caller referred to with the quality of life, changed, crime did drop down, more tourism, tourists came to, to New York, he did do that. People were not afraid to ride the subways, they weren't afraid of traveling on the streets or riding, uh, you know, going to an apartment building. That did change, because I, I, I was there and I've seen it, and, and I felt it. Uh, my guys, the sheriff's department was responsible for closing all those smut Places on Times Square, you, you familiar mm-hmm. with that? They were selling, right in their window, they were showing you drug uh, paraphernalia. A- anyway, uh, Rudy closed those places down, and I could tell you what we found in those stores. I could tell you one incident with Rudy, and uh, where the storekeepers, somehow they, they knew we were going to raid their place the next day and close it down in Times Square. Uh, those places don't exist. They do it low-key now when Rudy was the mayor. My captain came to me and says, hey, chief, one of these stores here, they have a lock on the door. It's not on the court. The lock that he had changed from the day before it was in addition to what we had on the uh, the warrant. And Rudy was standing with me on the corner, and, I, and he says, what do we do, chief? And then what I said, kick the effing door in. Mm. And Rudy walked away and said, oh, boy, I could see you were a city detective. But anyway, but what we found in that place, I am telling you, we found child porn. It would make you throw up, you know, the things right. that were in that place. There were, there were narcotics in there. There were uh, M&S, all that stuff in there. Rudy did that. That's back, by the way, now that since the since we uh, Rudy's not the mayor anymore. So the quality of life and the broken windows that you was uh, that you were talking about it 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 does work the broken window policies. By the way, we got Richie on the line. Richard, question or statement for for Matt Tahibi? Yes, first of all, great interview, Matt. I agree with a lot of things that you say or said, I should say. Mm-hmm. But um, well, when it talks about getting stopped, I'm white. I grew up on the Lower East Side. Lutalano may call it the Lower East Side. I prime area. There was an outfit called the Tactical Patrol Force, TPF. I would walk two, three blocks. They'd stop me. Where are you going? You're carrying anything on you. They'd tap me down. And then I say, okay. And I continue on. I go two more blocks. Two more cops stop me. This would happen almost every day. What did I do? I stopped. Yes, officer. What would you like? I tell him. That's it. I say, well, officer, I just got stopped by the other cops. He says, well, now you're getting stopped by me. Let me see your identification. And he would tap me down also. So the main thing is you have to comply regardless of your color, in my opinion. Now, the other thing is, Matt, Lou Talano asked you if you were one of the officers at the time of occurrence with Eric Garner, and you were there, you never answered the question, what would you do if you were part of that team? Well, I, 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 I couldn't arrest him if I didn't see him selling a cigarette. <laughs> no, no, so. no. You were told by your, by your boss or your sergeant, whoever it is, to clear up the situation, and you went up to him, and he got fresh with you or pushed you or did right, something but how, stupid. How, how, what how am I going to arrest do? him if he's not doing anything? That's the problem. Uh, no, but that, that's, that's not the question. It is the question. You're a police officer. No, you're a police officer. You're mm-hmm. told, what would you tell your sergeant? I tell him I couldn't arrest him. He wasn't doing anything. Well, one thing is very good. 
that you never took the police test. But I like you anyway. <laughs> I just want you to know that. Okay. I like I mean, you look, anyway. I, I, I get what you're saying, and I and I and I and I I talked to police officers who, who told me the same thing. They said, "Look, you, you you get told by your lieutenant when you come into the station that you got to clear up a condition on a corner. You got to come back with a number, or else you're in trouble." And but I, well, and I get that, but. You, but you if see, the guy's Matt, not doing anything, you, what are you, you going to do? But, but I'm just going to say this, Matt. When they talk about summonses, quotas, cops have quotas. Mm. Do you need a quota if you stand on the corner of any place? You're going to see somebody doing something wrong. Your job is to keep the city safe, keep the pedestrian safe. The person goes to a red light. You stop them. You don't care what color they are. You're going to stop them because they went to a red light. They, made, they did something wrong. That's not a quota that you have to bring in so many or arrest so many people. Yeah, but Matt, we get to keep the uh, city Richard, But Richard, Matt is saying that it's, it uh, more frequently happens in uh, in uh, black yeah, I mean, or African American. Yeah, I mean, it's out. It's yeah. it's you know between eighty and ninety percent of the, of those quality of life arrests have been black and Hispanic people since well, the, that's the inception the of that program. In. If you go to a quality of life in, in another area in, in a uh, uh, in, Brook- in Borough Park in Brooklyn, the Jewish area, or you go into an Italian area, you're going to still have something going on. And then I don't believe a cop picks on somebody because of their skin, only if they're in that area or because they're looking for somebody with that description. I mean, as far as I could see, because like I said, I got stopped many times by cops, and I listened to them. First thing I do, yes, and, and I felt I'm right. But the first thing is I comply whatever they say, Give them my identification, talk to them if it's in a car, whatever it is. I always believe you have to act nice to the cop regardless what color you are, what religion you are. And anyway, that's my opinion. And I just want you to know you did a terrific job. And I'm going to buy your book because I enjoy what you had to say. <laughs> Thanks. Well, thank Thanks. you very much. Thanks, Richard. I appreciate it. All right. By the other way, by, 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 uh, not only Richard, the other guests, the other books, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Matt Tahibi, The Divide, uh, Griftopia, The Great, Derangement, yep. and then insane clown <laughs> president, which I get a kick <laughs> out of that title, you know. And I, I think that's it. You, you know, that's pretty much of the books that you've written. Yeah, right? I've got a few others, but they're not oh. they're not really in print anymore, so it's okay. But uh, oh, okay. but Lou, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Right. Uh, and uh, thank you for having me on the show. Okay, thank you, Mike. My, my, uh, thanks, and hopefully <laughs> we'll hope, as they say. Mabuhai, you know what that means. I hope. Yeah, Mabuhai, yeah. Mabuhai, <laughs> Mabuhai, Matt. Okay. All right, take care now. Thank you. Happy New Year, by the way, to you and your family. You too. You right. Too. Thank you, Matt. Uh, that was an interesting, uh, interesting uh, guest. I mean, I like the guy. I, you know, just uh, he was doing what he thought, and he is. Uh, I was going to ask him a few other things, but I didn't want to touch on it. But uh, uh, we got a f- uh, nine more minutes. But I, I just want to say this: uh, Matt went to Russia for some reason. I don't know why. He spent some time in uh, Matt Hebe in Russia. And my understanding was he came back sort of liberal. I, I, I would think he'd be the opposite. But he spent some time in, in Russia. If he stayed on for the hour, I was going to ask him about that. Uh, I thought if he, if he was more liberal, which I thought he might have been, but he's not, you know. Uh, it happens to be, he, 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 in the book, he put in what he believes, and he did a great job, by the way, in uh, putting the book together from his perspective, by the way. So obviously you have a different opinion. Uh, like the other two calls, Tom and Rich, they're talking about law enforcement. They have a different feeling. Uh, Matt did not walk in their shoes, although he tried to get a great insight on, and he did say it, but he, he knows how, uh, 
how tough the job is to be a, a police officer anywhere in the country, by the way. So uh, it's a great book. Uh, I would recommend buying it, even though it sort of indicates that the cops screwed up. But I, I do want to just mention this. A Comstat meeting is not a meeting of a bunch of, bunch of, just a bunch of cops who decide what they're going to do. Comstat is a meeting of high-ranking police officials, probably lieutenant and above, I would think, you know, I know it's all high-ranking officers, and usually uh, they get their direction from the police commissioner uh, uh, and also the mayor's office. So, and then they they talk about different issues, different concerns in, in different parts of the uh, of the city in the five boroughs. And in this case, it happened to be uh, Staten Island Bay Street, which is is which is a street uh, that has a lot of stores, a lot of People selling things, and and I don't have to say this, Gardner's, Eric Gardner's presence did intimidate a lot of the customers. Now, they're not going to tell you that. A lot of the storekeepers, the poor guy died. He died not as a result of, I didn't get into that, they just saw this uh, illegal chokehold issue. Uh, I don't know why I didn't, but we were talking about other things. Uh, you know, uh, they talk about Eric Gardner died from an illegal chokehold. Well, let me say this, you know. Uh, if you can say, which is the title of the book, which I'm sorry I didn't get out to Matt Hebe. I'm, I'm hoping he's listening uh, you know, online to what I have to say now. If you can say, I can't breathe, you're not choking, by the way. I worked on a lot of homicides. Uh, if, you're being, if you're strangled, you die by asphyxiation though, because... You were strangled. You can't say anything. You can't speak. You can't breathe. You can't even say, I can't breathe. So if someone says, I can't breathe, they can still kick you, bite you, punch you. If they can say, I can't breathe, they're functioning. I'll give you a good example. Toughest guys out there in the ring are the MMA fighters. When they're being choked out, do they say, I give up, I can't breathe? They can't speak. They tap. They tap out because they can't speak. So, uh, you know, I, I did. I worked on homicides. If you're being strangled, you're being strangled. You're being choked out. You're fighting for air. You cannot say, "I can't breathe." If you say, "I, I can't breathe," you're functioning. You're not dying. You're functioning. So, uh, I'm sorry. I, I, and uh, maybe I'll text him. Uh, but I, I know I'm going to talk to him uh, again, uh, Matt Tahibi. So, to say you're telling the police officers you're dying or you're choking because you say I can't breathe is a fallacy. You can't speak. You can't speak. You can't talk if you're being choked out, like the MMA fighters. You know these guys are in great shape. They would tell you, I can't breathe, you you know, you're killing me. They tap you. They have to tap you, you know. So by the title of the book, you know, I'm sorry he's not here to correct me, is a fallacy saying I can't breathe because you're being choked to death. If you're being choked to death, you can't speak. I wanted to clear that up. I had similar cases where people died by strangulation, and I did watch the autopsies being done on them, by the way, in Bellevue Hospital in the morgue. Uh, you know, so the, the title in itself is false. You know, uh, illegal chokeholds 
what is a, a, a legal chokehold and what is an illegal chokehold. If you if you got a guy six foot three or four, three hundred pounds, you are five feet seven, and they by the way that's tall today in, in the police world. I'm going to get yelled at, but anyway, that is tall in the police world today because you have cops five feet two. So uh, let's take an average cop five foot eight, maybe five foot nine, five foot ten, five foot eleven. The guy is six foot four, three hundred pounds plus. You don't know. You really don't know. How would you know if he's diabetic, has high blood pressure, you know, or we? How do you know that? You know, the guy's resisting arrest. You do what you have to do. They didn't shoot the guy. They brought him down to the ground. And, that you know, for a guy, I think the cop was 5'7", 160 pounds. Uh, but to bring this big guy down, he had to get him in, in a choke, bring him down, a choke hold. But he's saying, I can't breathe. That means he's not dying. I just wanted to clear that one issue up. And that's coming from experience, you know. But I got to say this, the uh, Matt Tahibi, uh, you know, he gave it a fair shake, Uh you know, he, he does sort of believe that uh, the African Americans or, or minorities are being, uh, you know, you know, sort of more taken advantage by police officers. But again, New York City police officers today is the most diverse police department in the in the country. Interesting, uh, you know, uh, I just saw just recently that in the police department you have a Muslim organization, a Muslim society, and then you have a Russian society in the police off in the uh, police department, and they've always had pretty much Asian jade, which is Asians, and you had the Latinos and the Hispanics, uh, the Colombian, the Italians, and the, the Emeralds, uh, you know, and the Shatram, Shatram. I hope I pronounced that right. Rich will get mad at me. The Shatram society, which is Jewish, but now you have all these different diverse groups within the police department. That is an indication. That it's impossible. I have to say this for a cop today, uh, you, you know, that to, to block up people based on ethnic, religious, or color. I don't believe it. I didn't believe it in my time, obviously, because I've worked with. You know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna use the cliche. Oh, my neighbor next door is black. You know, I, I laugh when someone says that. You know, or I I, I know. Uh, you know, a black person. But I do have to say this. I work closely with African-American police officers. I was uh, I was honored to get the Medal of Honor with a police officer, the late Warren Forward, who was shot. Uh, and him and I and his partner and my partner were making a raid. And where we were making the raid, believe it or not, Pink Houses, which became like a high-profile place in Brooklyn. And... Uh, it was the black police officer that got shot. And who shot him? Again, it was not a Polish guy from Brownsville. It was a, it was a black drug dealer. I have to say that because we're dealing in that area. Who are you going to lock up? Who are the drug dealers? I mean, if you, if you go to Bensonhurst or Bay Ridge, yeah, you probably got Italian or white drug dealers, you know. But if you go in the minority area, this is this is what it is. So to say cops, you know, uh, pick on people because they're racist, don't believe it. I don't know, because I, I, I was there, didn't see it. Oh, yeah, you kid around in the locker room, you say it back and forth. But there's an old saying, on, I know, in our squadron, uh, we're all blue and we all bleed red. Uh, you know, anyway, uh, that's my story, and I'll stick to it. All right. Uh, again, I want to thank my guest, uh, 
Matt Tahibi and his book, I, I Can't Breathe. I want to wish everyone a happy new year, healthy and happy new year. And by the way, I'll see you next year.